Good morning. How's everyone doing? Yeah, good morning. All right, so turn to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Um, It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, We've had uh, some great sermons the past couple of weeks. I had a short uh, break, just some time off preaching. I was here, but just a chance to uh, enjoy others teaching uh, the word. And last time we were in the book of Acts, we were in Acts chapter 20. And a great message was at that time shared uh, by one of our elders, John McKay. The title of that message was Christ-like Leadership. And we were looking there at Paul and his group of fellow missionaries came to an area which would be on the like sort of coastal area of modern-day Turkey called Miletus. And it was just south of Ephesus. And the elders, the leaders in the church there at Ephesus, they came to meet Paul at Miletus, and there was this very emotional goodbye as Paul said, I'm leaving to go to Jerusalem. And so that was where we were, and it's good to be uh, in Acts 21 this morning. Title of the message is The Jesus Way, Do Hard Things, all right? And um, I think the the one thing I want to get out of the way uh, before we read this passage, verses 1 through 16 this morning, I just want to say this one thing. I just want to get us all on the same page now, okay? And that is that Paul, okay, talking about the Apostle Paul, Paul, the character in this passage, felt called to go to Jerusalem. And you say, why does that matter? What does that have to do with me? Listen, as we study this passage, it's important to know, just know that it was a non-negotiable for him that he was going to Jerusalem. More about that as we go. But just a couple of places in Scripture as we've been studying Acts, sort of leading up to chapter 21, where we see that to be the case. Acts 19, verse 21. It says, Now after these events, Paul, you see, resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, that's Greece, and go to, what does it say? Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. His plan, he doesn't know how it's going to happen. His plan is to go to Jerusalem, then Rome. Another place, Acts 20, verse 16, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. Why? Why? For he was hastening, you see, to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So you can kind of see in Acts, as we are leading up to chapter 21, Paul's not wondering if he's supposed to go to Jerusalem. He is certain of it. One more verse. Acts 20, verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. This is Paul speaking. Watch this. Constrained by the Spirit. He he feels the Holy Spirit has said, you're going to Jerusalem, Paul. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there. So hold that in your mind as we read chapter 21, verse 1 through 16, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll dive into our points this morning. So chapter 21, And when he had parted from them and set sail, he came by a straight course to Cos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and set sail. When he had come in sight of Cyprus, 
Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. Verse 7. When he had finished the voyage, or when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Bow with me quickly. Heavenly Father, we come before you together as people gathered to worship Christ. Lord, we come before you. We recognize, Lord, not just the presence of one another here this morning, but we recognize your presence this morning. Your Holy Spirit, Lord, in this room, filling us, helping us, God, to see what without your help we could not see, the truth of your word. And so, God, we pray that that help this morning would be mighty, that we would be encouraged, that we would see Christ clearly and see ourselves clearly as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the Jesus way, do hard things. The the message this morning, we've got seven points. They all start with T. There's not a rule for pastors to do alliteration, just so you know. Um, I do it because it's helpful for me as I'm up here preaching or teaching and sharing. I can kind of get on a roll and remember my points. Um, Sometimes I still don't. But uh, anyways, so live the Jesus way in every way. Do hard things. That's sort of our organizing statement under which each of our points this morning fall. And the first one is... Live the Jesus way in every way. Do hard things in travel, in travel, all right? And and hopefully you'll see how each of these points comes right out of these verses. But here in verses 1 through 3, what, what, what I want to really say to us and what I think this passage shows us is that we are to go where God has called us to go however we can. 
And we are to go, keyword, go. Verses one through three again, you know, and when he had parted from them, so he, he left these people that he loved and cared about in, in Ephesus that were, they were meeting in Miletus. He parted from them, he set sail, and we came by a straight course to cause. They're going on these Greek islands, it's a cruise. And the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, And so they're sort of going in the Aegean Sea down to the southern tip of Turkey. They get there, and they're on the southern tip of Turkey, and they're like, all right, they've been kind of like just sort of going around, you know, the region, right? They're just sort of going around the Triangle, Durham, Chapel Hill, Raleigh. But now they're going to RDU to find a plane that's going all the way to California. Does that make sense? They're going to now cross the Mediterranean Sea. So verse 2, having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, that's, that's... over where Israel is. And I do have a map for you if you want to see. I know I'm reading the verses. Also, there's a map, but we'll get it up there. Um, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And there the ship was to unload its cargo. The Jesus way in every way do hard things. Here's the point. (laughs) Think about this. In travel. There's a couple ways we could come at this. First of all, do hard things. You know what's hard? Travel. Travel is hard. But the Jesus way is to do hard things. You cannot read the New Testament and not come away with the perspective that these followers of Christ were burning through their passports for the gospel. And And that's not to say that every single person is supposed to go be a missionary or go on every mission trip that the church offers. But as followers of Christ, if there's an indifference in our heart or a hardness and a resistance toward going with the gospel, there's something wrong. Travel. Two-thirds of the word God is go. The first two letters of the gospel is go. There's no way to not understand that as Christians, we're to go and make disciples of all nations and to be part of that. When it comes to traveling for the glory of Christ, you know, we can either, you know, we can either give, we can go, we can pray, or we can disobey. And so travel. And so I just see in these verses, Paul and his group, they are traveling. And isn't it amazing that they do not have a private jet? No, it's not amazing. It's amazing that some pastors do, though. Look, look, look here, though. They, they get to this island, Patara, whatever it is, and they're like, we need something to cross the Mediterranean Sea to get over to Jerusalem. That's where we're going. Hmm. They get on a cargo ship. This is not first class. So they're like, you know what? We're going to go where God's called us to go, however we have to. We're not waiting for it to be easy or convenient because the Jesus way, in every way, do hard things. They turned a dirty cargo ship into a gospel ship. And there they go. But even look at verse 3. I love verse 3. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria. I just thought, you know, that's interesting that Luke chose to include that. Do you think that's interesting? I was thinking, what would that be like? 
I found a picture of flying in a plane over Cyprus with it out your window on the left. I'll show it to you. And I was thinking, you know, it's, it's kind of like this is, this is maybe modern day us like doing what Luke did. And it's a travel note, but why is it there? I, why does it even matter? I think it's there because he enjoyed it. I think it's there because he enjoyed it and shared it. And, and I was thinking about that because I think even as we think about living the Jesus way in every way, in even our travel, I was thinking about even as we travel, not always for a mission trip, but even just for, for other reasons, are we traveling with a sense of wonder in our heart and worship in our heart for the Lord who created all things and all things cry out and glorify God, their creator. And that really is, I think, for a Christian who understands that God has made this world, that is the heart of travel, to go and explore this world that God has made. And so live the Jesus way in every way, point one, in travel. Point two, in use of time. In use of time. Look at the first part of verse four. So so they get there, right? They they get there. They're on this cargo ship. We've got to think about what's just happened. So they get there. In verse three, they come to uh, Syria and they landed at Tyre. Now, I looked, and Paul, according to the New Testament, has never been to Tyre. This group has never been there. They didn't plant a church there. They didn't start a mission there. They've never been there that that has been recorded. New place. And it says, the ship was unloading its cargo. All right? Now, that's inconvenient. A seven-day layover. It says, and having sought the disciples, verse 4, we stayed there for seven days. You know what? It's inconvenient when you have to use a cargo ship to get where you're going. It's hard, right? And the Jesus way sometimes is hard. We do hard things to get where God's called us to go, however we can. So anyways, it's like, here they are. And what are they thinking for these seven days? Paul's like, you guys go out. I'm just going to work. I'm going to do email in the airport. You guys go out. No. It says, they sought out the disciples and stayed there for seven days. And there's a lot here, right? Like, first of all, it's amazing the, the sense of community that believers had, believers that had never even met each other. This commonality that they have in Christ. They're like, well, we have a seven-day layover as they get the cargo off of the ship. What are we going to do? Let's see if there's Christians here. Let's go and find them, and maybe they will have a place where we can stay. Christian hospitality. The welcome of Christ extended through the welcome of one opening their home. Anyways, there's so much here, but I wanted to just focus in on making use of time. Use my downtime for God's will. Not all of it. This isn't a guilt trip. It's not like, hey, it's wrong if you watch a show on Netflix or if you like daydream. No. But there's an aspect in which, and the Bible talks about this, in Ephesians 5.16, make the best use of time because the days are evil. Colossians 4.5, walk in wisdom, making the best use of time. This is something God does care about. 
In the Psalms, it says, teach us to number our days. And so as Christians, we ought to understand that being a follower of Christ means making good use of time. And using our downtime for God's will is part of that. When I was a college student um, in undergrad at Florida State, I remember I went to the library in between this like two-hour break I had in between one class and the next class. My kids hate this story because I tell them all the time. And uh, so I would go to the libraries before laptops, before iPhones, to go to the library to get on a computer. And I'm sitting there, and uh, there's all these computers, like all these tables with computers. Everyone's like, we're going there to do some stuff on computers. And, and I'm sitting there every day in this two-hour period of time, just wasting time. And this friend of mine named Darren, who was part of a Bible study with me, was sitting there with me, both of us next to each other, wasting time every day for two hours. Finally, he said to me one day, hey, man, I was thinking <laughs> maybe we should... Uh, just use some of this time to like walk around, pray for the campus, maybe just like pray for each other, have a little fellowship or something. Just use the time for something like that. And I was like, uh, all right. <laughs> so we started doing that. And it was him bringing that idea to me. I didn't have that idea, but I was so thankful for it because we started to make a bit of a better use of our time to deepen our fellowship in Christ. And we can do that. We can find areas in our life where we can do that without giving up rest, right? One thing that's also awesome about this, when they're at Tyre and they go for seven days and they meet these Christians, is how we see that God is at work where you've never been. Paul never been there, but God is at work there. And there are men who love the Lord, there are women who love the Lord, and there are children who love the Lord in this place. We're going to see that in a second. It's also encouraging and even maybe challenging to you and me that when Paul and his group got there, they thought, who do we want to go connect with? Who would welcome us? And it was people who share their faith in Christ. And that's a challenge to us because sometimes we feel like we connect more with people who have hobbies in common with us or affinities or season of life. And we do certainly connect with people around those things. But remember, as a follower of Christ, you will never have more in common with anyone than you have in common with a person that you both believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and will spend eternity together. It's, it's just encouraging use of time. Number three, in accepting trials. The Jesus way in every way do hard things. Number three, in accepting trials. I think this is maybe the biggest point in this passage as relates to trials and suffering. It's going to be sort of in two of our points this morning. But the point here is, as a Christian, I don't desire trials and suffering. So when we say the Jesus way, do hard things, it's not like we're looking for hard things to do. We don't desire trials. We don't desire suffering for myself or for others. We don't. But we do accept it as part of following Jesus 
in something that our God can use for good. Let me show you the verses. So second part of verse 4. This is them. They're still in this community for the seven-day layover in Tyre. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed. That means the cargo ship was blowing its horn. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. There's so much here. Think about this. A few things. In accepting trials, that's the point, but we're just going to talk for a moment. In, in, in verse 4, it says, Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Paul felt called to go to Jerusalem. Paul felt compelled and constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I showed you all those verses where Paul is going to Jerusalem. And yet here, some believers say that they feel through the Spirit, Paul should not go to Jerusalem. What do we do with that? But we can relate with this, right? These are people who just in seven days' time have come to very much love Paul and his group and feel protective of him and care for him. And they're like, hey, don't go. It's just bad news for you there. And and we don't think you should go die. Don't go face arrest and persecution and suffering. Why? Don't go. We want your fellowship here. We want you to keep living. We don't want you to do hard things. We want you to live within a two-hour drive so that we can see you and hang out with you. And Paul's like, I got to go. I understand your care for me. I understand that the Spirit has told you that I will face sufferings, but there's a difference between the Spirit giving them sort of an awareness that there will be sufferings and the Spirit revealing to them that he's prohibiting Paul from going. This doesn't say that the Spirit said that. He says, I hear you. Thank you for your care. But I've got to go. Can you picture this scene? Because it's an amazing scene. There are, there are believers. There are men. There are women. It says there are with their wives. There are children. They're on the beach. It says they're kneeling down. In praying, can you imagine a child saying, what are we doing? Well, we're, we're this group of missionaries, Paul and his group, Luke and others, that we really enjoyed having them here for the week, right? Yeah, they're great. Well, they're going to Jerusalem. Well, why are you guys all crying and telling them not to go? Well, because they're probably going to die there. Well, then why are they going? Because it's the Jesus way and we do hard things. Let's pray for them. Kids. Like, is there any church service like that in any way today? Think about the value of getting your kids around people like this. It's really, really amazing. But again, the point is, as a Christian, I don't desire suffering. I'm not pursuing it. I'm not looking for it for myself or for others. But I do, and this is where we get Paul's perspective here. I do accept it. 
They didn't desire suffering for Paul, and they were right to let him know. And even maybe they were right to encourage him a little bit. Hey, maybe we don't want you to go. That's actually not wrong. It's right to not want people to suffer. But we must accept it as part of following Christ and realize that God can use it for good. Think about the difference in, in worldviews and how we approach suffering and hardship and trials. In Hinduism, we have karma, where we are punished for deeds done in our soul's previous incarnation. And so this life is a time to settle accounts and hope for a better incarnation. That's, that's the talk around trials and suffering in Islam. The followers are to submit to a distant and impersonal and transcendent Allah to earn paradise through suffering. That's it. In Buddhism, suffering shows that one is too attached to worldly things. Hope is found in seeking to be enlightened and not ignorant and being less attached. So these are the worldviews that our world offers. But in Christianity, in the gospel, listen, we understand from God's word that we live in a fallen world. And that's why they're suffering. That we look to a personal God for deliverance. And that God in Christ, listen, suffered with us. Suffered like us. Suffered on the cross for us. That God desires to be present and walk nearly with us as we face trials and suffering. That they are part of God's hidden and sovereign plan for our lives. And he can and will use them for an ultimate good that we may not understand. God desires that we show mercy to others, that we seek to alleviate suffering in people's lives who are made in his image, regardless of their beliefs. That's the Christian answer to suffering. And it is so superior to anything else out there. But it really is biblical. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Second Timothy, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First Peter 1, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, do you see that word necessary? You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is purpose in trials. There is a God with us in trials. There is a Savior who's blazed the trail through trials. And so the Jesus way, we do hard things in accepting trials. Number four, number four, in various tasks. I know this is kind of like a weird point to go into right after that one. In various tasks, because verses seven through nine give us what I would like to say is just some real gold about following Christ. 
So let me read it to you. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Verse 8. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. All right. Let's talk about the Jesus way in every way, and even in various tasks, because I think that point just jumps out here. Here we have Philip, and we've got to remember, if we've been reading Acts and studying it, Philip has been mentioned before. He was mentioned in Acts chapter 6, when they were trying to find seven servants who were filled with the Spirit and wisdom to help the elders do the ministry of the church in such a way that needs would be better met. Philip was chosen along with Stephen and some others. Philip we heard about in Acts chapter 8. He's Philip the evangelist, and he goes and he's on the road, and he shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip also goes and shares about Christ with the Samaritans north of Jerusalem. And so this is Philip. Like, I mean, I'm just saying, he's, he's Philip. He's been doing stuff. And, and so now we learn some more things about Philip. That he has a house. That it's in Caesarea. That's a town on the coast north of Jerusalem that Caesar built to be a port city for Jerusalem. And that he has four daughters that live with him, that prophesied. What we see here is that Philip has been a faithful disciple of Christ in all the various tasks of his life. And it's really challenging and encouraging. In fact, instead of tasks, maybe say hats, the different hats that he wears. He was a deacon in Acts 6, a servant hat. He was an evangelist, a missionary in Acts 8, a missionary hat. He had been a disciple of Christ for 20 years because that's how much time has gone by. We'll just call that a disciple hat. In, in a time when Christians were persecuted, when it was not easy to be a Christian, he remained faithful. He had four daughters that walked with the Lord, a father hat, a leader of his home hat, a provider hat, because he owned a house and he had his children still living with him. He wore these hats faithfully. I was thinking about the different hats thing, and I wanted to share some of mine with you, um, because this is a very real thing for me, um, because I need hats. <laughs> but... Um, it's really actually a real thing with me. I'm telling you, every single week, I spend time auditing how I'm doing as a follower of Christ as relates to the different hats I feel he's called me to wear. And so I have, one of them is my passionate disciple hat. And, and I assess where I'm at. Am I doing okay? You know, and that is my, you know, we have the Fellowship Brawley hat. Our mission is to make passionate disciples. So I just, you know, put this hat on and I start thinking about it. I don't really do that, but I'm just saying we have different hats that we wear, right? Um, passionate disciple hat. And, and, and then, um, let's see, there is, I feel, I feel called to share the gospel with people and also to teach the Bible. So a missionary evangelist hat. And so I got to think about that. How am I doing? 
with that. So I grab my Stanika hat, you know. I'm like, all right, how am I doing? We we have all these hats that we wear. That's another one. Um, I also have, I, I coach my kids in soccer. And I take it pretty seriously because it's very fun and it's a way to meet lots of people. And so I call that the joyful coach hat. Um, it's a place of a lot of joy for me. It's a place of building relationships. So I have this hat and I really do wear this hat when I coach constantly. I wear this at every game. No one's ever really talked to me about their opinion about it. Um, but it helps to distinguish me from my assistant coaches. And yeah, uh, I'm sorry to my children for this, but it helps me remember just that God has called me to be a joyful coach, not just with soccer, but also with our church, with leading staff, with just ways that he's called me to relate with people in that way. And I want to be faithful to it. I also have a friend hat. Um, a friend of mine gave me this hat. So that's my friend hat, right? There you go. And then I have what I call the big game hunter hat. And I'm serious. Like that's actually a role that I feel that God has called me to play to take huge steps of faith, to lead that way, to be a big game hunter. I'm not as much a details like tomorrow guy. I'm a vision, you know, big picture guy. So this is my big game hunter hat. And it's also the hat I wore when I went to Israel. And if you go to Israel with us, you can see me in this hat a lot. But see, it's got the thing to keep you from getting a sunburn on the back. And it's amazing. So we wear these hats. Here's the reason I share that with you, though. I think that's a helpful exercise to define what hats or tasks God has called you to. And how do you have a biography like Philip that Luke gives to him? Picture 20 years later of a follower of Christ who's been faithful wearing the many hats that God has placed in his life. What has God called you to do well as a disciple of Jesus. It's not everything, okay? But what has he specifically called you to? Wear your many hats well in various tasks. Number five, in treatment of our sisters in Christ. Verse nine. I'll read that again. Verse nine. Um, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. All right. This is a whole verse. It just says that. What do we do with that? You know, it's one of those verses. This is one of those verses where, like, you, I could just not talk about it, right? And then people would be like, hey, man, you didn't talk about verse 9. You know, it's kind of one of those verses where it, like, would be dangerous to talk too much about it, but it would be dangerous also to, like, not say anything about it. So um, why does Luke say this, though? Like, why does Luke mention this? Why do you think? Why is a whole verse saying that Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied? I mean, the first answer and obvious one is because he did. And he recorded the truth. But let's consider, and of course the Bible doesn't actually tell us why he said it. But let's consider some options for why. One would be that Luke, a historian writing the book of Acts, is telling us as readers, or he's telling his original readers, go ask them. That's what he's saying. Philip had four unmarried daughters, so they were a lot younger than Philip, probably still alive at the time of the writing of the book of Acts. Luke says, go ask them. Go find them and ask them if this is true. In fact, in a book called Church History by Eusebius, 
he tells that one of the early bishops in Turkey reported he had met some of the daughters of Philip. A few decades after the book of Acts was written, and that they were a significant source of knowledge about first-generation Christianity to him. So that's one reason we could say probably Luke mentioned them. But why else? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we learned at the day of Pentecost that a prophecy from the Old Testament had been fulfilled when the Spirit fell on the disciples in the upper room. And that prophecy was Joel chapter 2, and I'll read it to you. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So Luke is saying, hey, the prophecy has been fulfilled, not just on the day of Pentecost, but all over the empire, all over the world. Spirit has filled the sons and daughters of the Lord. But another way, and one that I want us to see and think about this morning, another reason that Luke included this is to remind us and to show us the usefulness, the spiritual giftedness, and the great impact of our single sisters in Christ. And we just see here, he had four unmarried daughters. That's not uncommon. Philip, families were big then. Philip probably had 15 kids. But four of his daughters weren't married, and so because of that, they would stay in the home. And Philip clearly discipled them, led them to the Lord, and they have the spiritual gift of prophecy, which means not necessarily to predict the future, but means to to speak truth. It doesn't mean to preach on Sunday mornings. It means to speak truth. It means to exhort. It means to use their gifts to build up the body of Christ with the word of God. Here's a picture of our single sisters in Christ doing that and the writer of the book of Acts making sure we see it because we are to value it. And you say, well, I, yeah, I know, I value it. But it's kind of hard to, to like find ways to like do that and, and make that happen because church is like a lot of young families and church can just be a lot of dudes and it just takes a lot of effort to make that like a real thing. The Jesus way, we do hard things. We figure it out. And that's the point, really. It is. Treatment of our sisters in Christ. Number six, in taking advice, in taking advice, And this is from verses 10 to 13, and it's just saying, you know, we don't listen to advice, listen, that only considers comfort and safety, even from Christians. We don't. Look at verse 11. And coming to us, I'm sorry, verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, we saw him already. He prophesied about a famine in Jerusalem. It started a whole thing prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt. I want you to picture this as I read it. He took Paul's belt. He's double jointed clearly. 
and bound his own feet and hands and said, what, what kind of picture is this? And said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine like the pastor doing that saying, here's the word of God. Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. And everybody checks for their belt. Paul's like, mine's missing. That's what happened. And he's like, the man who owns this belt, that's my belt. He says, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind him. He's like, like that? Oh, man, that's awkward. I'm not double-jointed like you, Agabus. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there, watch this, Luke writing the book of Acts now says we. Luke was in Paul's group. So before it was these, these, these sweet Christians that they met for the first time at Tyre, they tried to persuade Paul not to go. And Luke and the whole group were like, we got to go. Now they're in Caesarea and Agabus comes, does double jointed bonding and binding thing. And, 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 then, and then Luke is like, you know what? I'm on Agabus' side now. Luke, Paul, let's not go. Verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, watch this. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a lot in that verse. Look at Paul. Just look at this verse, even just sort of on the surface, we see Paul is a follower of Christ with thick skin and a soft heart. He has thick skin, meaning he's like, you know what? I'm ready to die. I'll go die. But he has a soft heart. He's like, but you guys are breaking my heart. It breaks my heart to think about leaving you and you're bringing that up and it's hurting. Thick skin and a soft heart, a good example for Christians. But we see here, and I think we can sort of take from this part of the passage, that like Paul, we are not to listen to advice that only considers comfort and safety, even if it's from our closest friends and family. It's true. Think about it. They just wanted what's best for Paul. They wanted to protect him. They wanted him to be safe. And that's a good instinct and impulse, except that God has clearly called Paul to go to Jerusalem. When Paul was converted, Jesus told him, you'll see how much you'll suffer for my namesake. Paul knows his calling. This is a classic picture of, you know, parents wrestling with whether they should send their kids to a school that might be dangerous. What is God saying? And you have to wrestle with that. What is God calling you to do? Not just, is it dangerous? Because that's not the only question that a Christian should ask. What is God calling you to do? It's the classic picture of parents that don't want their children and grandkids to move across the country or across the world to serve the Lord or for a job because they feel called by God to do that. And they say, no, 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 no. We don't just ask the question, will we be close to family? Will we have good times? We don't. Those are good things. They're not bad things. They're great things. But great things, when they become God things, are idols. We ask the question, what is God saying? It's so key here. 
And so the application here is we go the Jesus way in every way. We do hard things, even in taking advice from people, because we have to understand that we don't just listen to advice that considers comfort and safety only. In fact, when advice only considers comfort and safety, there might be something wrong with it. It probably is. Or number seven, last point, in being a teammate, in being a teammate. Verse 14 through 16, and since he would not be persuaded, this is Luke talking, he's like, Paul would not be persuaded by Agabus's stunt, by me siding with Agabus, none of it worked. We ceased and said, do you see? Let the will of the Lord be done. It wasn't about Luke and Agabus getting their way versus Paul's way. Let the will of the Lord be done. Verse 15, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Do you see that? I just want you to see that. We. We. Luke's like, we we try to get him not to come. He said, this is God's will. Sounds like it is. Let's go. We're not going to say, all right, Paul, then you go. We went. The whole group, the group that had just turned against him and said, no, Paul, I think we should stay. They all went because they're teammates. In being a teammate, the Jesus way, doing hard things in every way, being a teammate. And some of the disciples, verse 16, from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge being a teammate. Think about it. Proverbs 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. And you see, Luke and this team, they didn't tell Paul just leave and go. They were teammates. Who is the truest teammate? Who is the truest friend? Who is the true older brother that helps, that assists, that doesn't stay home, but goes and helps the father find the younger brother who's gone missing. It's Christ. And actually, I just want to close with this thought, all right? Here's a thought. Jesus chose God's will to go to Jerusalem. And there were people that cared about Jesus saying, no, Jesus, remember Peter? No, you're not going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Jesus said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember that? It's God's will. Jesus chose God's will in Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem. Even before the cross, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus way, in every way, do hard things. And so that's what Jesus did. And Paul is in the book of Acts here, right? Luke wrote both. In Luke, we see that's what Jesus did. So what are we seeing here? Paul chose God's will to go to Jerusalem. It's like Luke is like, let's do some mirroring of the book of Luke and Acts. Pivotal moments in both books. A key leader is like, I'm going to Jerusalem, and people say, you probably shouldn't. And he's like, but it's God's will. So Paul goes to Jerusalem. And his team chooses 
God's will and they go with them. And so let's just pause there. And let me just ask you, because I think this text is asking us this morning, will you go to Jerusalem? Will you go the Jesus way and do hard things for the glory of Christ? Let's pray.